All right, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 26 to 36 approximately. And I have entitled our lesson, Christ in Adam. Adam, you know, we're doing Old Testament Christology, Christ in the Old Testament, and Adam is definitely a picture of Christ. Some of it by way of comparison, some of it by way of contrast. But that's what our subject matter is going to be, by and large, this morning. You know I can get off the beaten track a little bit. (laughs) Now, I do want to warn you, if you're new, that this is going to be kind of very deep at at points, um, theological. Some of the rest of you say, well, what else is new, you know? But I only have one hour to get it all in, so of course, please read your notes. I don't know when they'll be coming out. If I have a ba- if we have a baby today, it might be a while. Oh, the notes, the notes. The email lesson will come out, and it is very, very lengthy. It's going to have a whole lot more in it than what I have time to explain. So if you have some questions about some of the things I say, they'll be more explained in the notes, all right? Like how could Adam be it made in the image of God? in his body because God is spirit and he's omnipresent. So how could his body be made in the image of God? Well, I explain that in the, in the notes, but I don't take the time because it's kind of deep to get into it here. All right, so you follow me? Make sure you read the notes. Okay, all right, let's pray. Would you bow with me? Father, we do thank you so much for this privilege to gather together for the sole purpose of getting to know you better through your written word and your living word, your son. Thank you for your holiness, your, your absolute righteousness, the qualities that your love nature caused you to want to share with personal beings that you created in your image. There are not enough words to praise you, Father, for being so very wise in all that you planned. We thank you and praise you for being a God of purpose, a God who does everything decently and in order, that you established natural laws and moral laws and spiritual laws, and, and, and you, you created divisions and distinctions and, and orbits and tides and seasons and cycles and all kinds of things that we can count on which in turn show us that our creator, you are sovereign and you are reliable in not only everything that you do, but in all that you promise. And now, Lord, as we come to this study to see Adam, the first man, as a type, a a, a prophetic picture of your son, I do ask for your grace so that I can explain so many deep foundational truths in a way that will be understandable for these women so that they can leave leave here perhaps with some degree of heartburn and enlightenment and excited about the absolute intricacy of your plans and your ways and your love that you have displayed in so many fantastic ways. And now I do ask that the words of my mouth and the collective thoughts of all of our hearts would truly please you and be acceptable in your sight as we do indeed only want our Savior, the last Adam, lifted up and glorified in this room in this next hour. For we ask it in his blessed name. Amen. Well, to the midpoint of creation day six. We only got so far as to the middle of day six when God created the animals. To that midpoint, everything that the word of the Lord did in his forming and his filling work of earth was preparing a dwelling place for man. The Lord, the Alpha Tav, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Memrah, the Hebrew word for word, the word, which we know is Christ, was setting the stage for the two main actors of scene one of his overall plan for mankind. And who were those two main actors? Adam and Eve. And they would, of course, represent all of mankind because they are our first parents, not some apes somewhere in past, past Adam and Eve. 
So in Genesis 1.26, if you'll look at that, we find that something uniquely intriguing occurs in the creation narrative. Rather than the word of the Lord simply speaking some aspect of his creation into existence from nothing, which, by the way, is called ex nihilo, to make something from nothing, ex nihilo. No one can do that except God. That's, why the, that's what the word create means. You can make something out of something already existing, but to create, only God can do that. So we find that... <clears throat> Something different happens in verse 26. We find that the Trinitarian members of the Godhead speak to themselves. Okay, instead of just the word going forth and creating something, the Godhead speaks to himself. And he says, or they say, I guess is the proper way, (laughs) they say, let us make man in our image. And then look at verse 27. We read that that is exactly what they then went on to do. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now these two verses tell us three very important truths. The first of which is the most important. It tells us that God speaks to himself. Okay? So next time your grandchildren sneak in the house and find you talking to yourself. My little Sophia did that the other day. She knows how to get in my house because she knows where the hide key is. And that can be really scary. I said, you're going to give me a heart attack one of these days. But she caught me up in the bedroom talking to myself. Well, God talked to himself. So I said, Sophia, that's a very godly thing your grandmother is doing. <laughs> My body is talking to my soul. My soul is talking to my spirit. I was joking about that. That is not the most important thing. But it is interesting. He is speaking to himself. The inner Trinitarian. And that shows that we have one God, three persons. All right. Secondly, we learn that God made both man and woman in his image. Not in the image of angels. You know, God is not an angel. He created the angels. The angels do not have bodies. They're of the spirit world only. They're not of the earth world. The temporal world. They're of the earth, the spiritual world. And he didn't make man in the image of animals. God is not an animal. He created all the animals. And the animals are not of the spirit world. They're only of the temporal world. Only of the earth world. They have no, they have no soul. Sorry to tell you that. But he made us, man, in his image. We are triune, just like he is. Body, soul, and spirit. And we possess self-consciousness. We can think about ourselves. As I said yesterday, sometimes we do too much of that, don't we? (laughs) We have God consciousness. We can think about God and, you know, who created us. And we have been given a conscience. The animals don't have consciences. Did you know that? Even when they look sad, those little puppies with their tail, they're not really guilty, feeling guilt. (laughs) It might be remorse, but um, we're unique. We can love. We can think about our origins. We can think about our destiny. We can think about our purpose in life. We can communicate, as I'm doing up here, with a highly developed brain. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. Just, it's just amazing. We even think about the eyeball and how it works. But uh, we can we can communicate. With this brain, and we have a tongue, a special tongue that can articulate words, and we have special fingers, don't we, that can write, that can paint, that can play the piano, play a guitar, surgeons can do intricate surgery, and on and on, we can knit, we can crochet, all the things we can do with our fingers. It's incredible. God made us like that. We can have intimate personal relationships. Not only with one another, but with God himself. Man's body was formed to have an erect posture. Aren't you glad we don't have to crawl around on our hands and our knees? Or that we have four feet? It's bad enough finding shoes to fit two. I don't know where I get these things when they pop out. But But we have an erect posture and we have a, a neck and a head created such that we can look up. Why do you think God wanted us to be able to look up? To think about him, to look toward him. We have a human face. 
that can express the emotions, the God-given emotions. Mild, you know, we can frown, we can be angry, we can, all that. So that's the second point. Then third from these verses, we learn that God created, bara is the Hebrew word, he created man, and he made man, asa is the Hebrew word, in his image. He created man's soul, he breathed into him the spirit of his own life, because he is the source of all life. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the what? The life. But he made man's body from the pre-existing matter of the dust of the earth. So man is uniquely both of God and of earth. Different from the angels who are just of the spiritual world, different from the animals who are just of the earth. Man is not only of the physical world, he is of the spiritual world. In both flesh and spirit, man, you know, we're brought together in both of those so that both earth and heaven are represented in us. Have you ever thought of that before? Unique. We are unique. Now, the creation of Eve, the creation of woman, she didn't receive the name Eve until after the fall. You know that? She was woman. Actually, their name was the same. They were both Adam. Um, before the fall and then Adam named her Eve which means mother of the living instead of mother of the dead which shows us he had faith in the promised seed of the woman and so we genuinely know that Adam believed God believed the coming savior and was saved because of what he named Eve but her creation is interesting and it presents one of the greatest problems for those who propose what is called theistic evolution These are people who believe, they call themselves Christians, and I'm not judging their heart because I can't, (laughs) but they believe that God used the slow progress of evolution to create everything. So they're compromisers. They say that they believe in the Genesis account of the creation of man, you know, creation of everything, but they also say that God used evolution and that man did evolve from some ape-like creature, theistic evolution. And they do this by reasoning to themselves that this is what the scripture means when it says that Adam was formed from the dust of the earth. The goo became you by way of the zoo thing. Took millions of years. He came from the dust of the earth and he went through all that process up to man. So that's how they reason this to themselves. But what do you guys do when it comes to the creation of Eve, of woman? I'll tell you what they do. They get a massive headache, as do biological evolutionists. They really cannot explain how man and woman evolved at the same time because you can't have one without the other or the human race would be extinct. So you have to have both of them evolving together. But the theistic evolutionists have a problem because it's either true or false that Eve was made from the body of Adam. You cannot compromise that with evolution. It's either true or it's false, one or the other. And the situation gets even worse for them because it's also the New Testament supports the teaching of woman being created out of man. We have, for example, 1 Timothy 2.13, which says, For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And it says in 1 Corinthians 11.8, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. So, here's a question. Who came first, woman or man? Man. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? The chicken. I mean, that's not a difficult question. The chicken came first. God created a chicken. Well, the Lord could have formed Eve's body out of the dust of the earth. He could have done that, but he didn't. I think one of the reasons he did not was to frustrate all the evolutionists. (laughs) But we read that he caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. Chapter 2, verse 21. And who was doing this, by the way? Which member of the Godhead did that, performed this surgery on Adam? The Lord Jesus, yes. The pre-incarnate 
Christ performed this surgery. After all, he is the great physician. Okay, so he performed the very first surgical operation on man. Adam's deep sleep pictured death. He did not die, just as Isaac did not die when Abraham put him on the altar. But it's a picture, of course, of what the Lord Jesus, who is called the last Adam, would do. Adam didn't really die, but it's a picture of death. And the surgical operation would involve blood. Do you know that? Adam was made with a flesh, blood, bone, body, just like you and I. So this operation involved the shedding of blood. So this means that the first Adam shed blood in order to provide for his bride. In fact, it was from Adam's side Now, if you have the King James, it says rib. That word in Hebrew is T-S-E-L-A, tsela. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But 35 times it appears in the Old Testament, 34 of the 35 times it is translated as side. So it was from his side. Now, whether God took a rib, I don't know. He may have. But the big thing to understand is it was from his side that the blood came forth. Now, it was not... Nobody understood this picture that's going on here until the New Testament and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam. No one understood that this picture of Eve's creation from Adam was a prefigure, a prophetic picture of the future shed blood and sacrificial death of Christ. You see, it was from the pierced side of the Lord Jesus, from which flowed a mixture of blood and water that he formed his church, his bride. The water of his word is what cleanses his bride so that when she is presented to him, as Eve was presented to Adam, she will be without spot or blemish. You think Eve was beautiful? Not a single blemish on her, I'll tell you. Uh, when she is, when the church, when the bride of Christ is presented to him, she will be like him. We, when we see him, we will be like him. An extension of his own life and in perfect union with him. You know, as Eve was flesh of Adam's flesh and bone of his bones, believers in Christ have become members of his body. It even says of his flesh and of his bones. In Ephesians 5.30. So our union, think of this, our union with Christ is far better than what Eve's union with Adam was. Our union as a church with the last Adam is far better than Eve's union with the first Adam. Because Adam's origin was where? Of earth. So therefore was Eve's origin of earth. However, Christ's origin is of heaven. Therefore, the church's origin is where? Of heaven. Now, woman came from man and was called by man's name. I told you at first she was Adam, Mr. and Mrs. Adam. Do you know where the the, um, name woman comes from? The womb of man. Womb man. Which was news to me because I always thought it was when... The Lord presented Eve to Adam, and he saw her for the first time. He said, whoa, man, (laughs) you've heard that before. (laughs) Uh, We who make up the church, the bride of Christ, we are partakers of Christ's divine nature. Who dwells in you if you are born again? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, we are of his divine nature, and we are also called by his name, aren't we? We're little Christ. We're Christians. Adam and Eve were the very first living beings on planet Earth. And think about this. Already in their creation and in their marital oneness, in their union, they already are presenting a beautiful picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. 
So you see Old Testament Christology all the way right at the very beginning, not only in creation, but in the first, our parents and in their marital union. It's just fascinating. Well, when the Lord Jesus did come to earth, he came, John the Baptist said, as the bridegroom to gather to himself the people who would make up his bride. Now, that picture is not accidental. It was not like God looked down from heaven to try to find some human relationship that was going on down here that might be a fitting symbol for his own love. It's completely the other way around. He designed that relationship to show his love. He didn't look down here and say, let's see, what shall I pick? When the Lord formed Eve from Adam's body, he was right then providing the means for humanity to understand the burning intensity of his divine love. What kind of love does he have for us? Well, unconditional, sacrificial. It's a jealous love. He has a jealous love for us. And that's a good jealousy. He wants no other rival. He he does not want us to have any other God before him, does he? One thing he hates is adultery among his people when they turn to other gods. Well, in the love of Adam for Eve, as bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, Christ is also revealed in his jealous love for his church. Paul wrote of that love. In 2 Corinthians 11.2, he said, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. The only man who ever gave birth to a woman, really strange to think about. (laughs) I'm sure Connie right now would really rather that Brad be giving birth. The only one man who ever gave birth to a woman was who? The first Adam. And guess what? He was also a virgin. He was a virgin. (laughs) Now, the only man who was ever birthed from a virgin woman was the last Adam, Christ, Jesus. Well, now here's a real good question. Why in the world did God create mankind in the first place? I mean, he knew how many horrible headaches he would get from us. If he could get headaches, I am sure mankind has given him unbelievable, unbelievable. I just can't even imagine. Why did he want all these headaches? Well, obviously there was something about God's nature of love. God is love, isn't he? He is love personified. There's something about his love that served as a major factor in creating mankind. He desired to have personal beings outside of his own Godhead. Now, within his Godhead, they love each other immensely. God the Father, God loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, blah, blah, blah. They love each other unconditionally, just with divine love. But they wanted, outside of their Godhead, someone else they could love and to have that love reciprocated. You know, the beings in turn to love them back. But the nature of love is such that it has to be voluntary. Otherwise, it isn't love. You cannot force somebody to love you, can you? No, you can't. So it has to be voluntary. And in order to be voluntary, God had to give man free will. And in order to express that will, to use that will, he had to be given an opportunity to use it, a Huge test of some kind where he could use his free will. There would have been no love demonstrated on either the part of God or the part of man if God had just produced an assembly line of robotic beings that were pre-programmed to serve and worship him. In other words, if he had made us all like robots pre-programmed, well, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Would that be him demonstrating love and creating us like that? Would it be love for us to be expressing that love? To I mean, expressing our praise of him? No, it would just be robotic. It wouldn't be genuine love. You're all following me still? So the best proof of genuine love for God, for us, is our obedience to him. Jesus said, If ye love me, keep 
my commandments. Now, how does God express his love toward man? Well, of course, he doesn't obey us, and it's a good thing he doesn't obey us. But how does he express his love for us? Giving. For God so loved the world, he gave. Sacrificial giving. All right, so the best proof of genuine love for God is our obedience to him. And therefore, there, and plus, he gave Adam and Eve great, great, immense incentive for obeying him. Think about this. He gave them everything, didn't he? Absolutely everything. He not only gave them immortal life, you know, created in his image. Now, they weren't omniscient, omnipresent, and all that, but he, he did not create man to die. He created man to live forever. He, he gave them his own presence with them and fellowship with them. In the cool of the day, he would walk with them there in the garden. He gave them a perfect environment. This world is beautiful today. It is. It's just breathtaking. But can you imagine what it was like before the fall? God could have created everything in black and white, but he gave us color he gave us more than one type of flower. What if there was only one type of flower? What if there was only one type of bird? What if there was only one type of tree? He just gave an abundance and a variety and just an amazing environment for them to live in. He gave them an abundance of animal companions. And, you know, I read one author. He said that Adam and Eve were the first, immor they were immortal, unashamed, naked vegetarians. So if you're a, a vegetarian, that's also, you know, godly, pre-fall godly. All right, but, you know, the animals then, you could, you could pet them. You, could, you know, dinosaurs even. They were all, none of them were vicious. And so, you know, a couple weeks ago when we said, if you could take a time machine ride back into the past, where would you go? I had to ask that question to my grandchildren. And my little Caleb, who's eight years old, said, I thought about that, Grandma, and I would want to go to the Garden of Eden. And I said, wow, that's really good. And I thought he was going to say, you know, something spiritual like, well, it was because it was before the fall and there'd be no sin. So I asked him, I said, well, that's a really good choice. Why would you like to go back to the Garden of Eden? He said, because I always wanted to ride a lion. <laughs> you did too. <laughs> He gave Adam a perfectly suited wife, gave him a job, a task. And it, we need jobs, don't we? We need tasks because that is what satisfies us and fulfills us. Every type of delicious fruit and herb to eat, he should have had no complaints whatsoever with what God gave him. But only one restriction. He was not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If he disobeyed, what would happen? He would surely die. Because he would know evil experientially. That's called disobedience. That's called sin. And what is the wages of sin? Yeah. Death. So he would surely die. Now, I'm going to change gears a little bit here. But since this is a study on Old Testament typology of Christ, I want to point out that there are seven, in the book of Genesis, there are seven distinct men who in various ways are types of, of Jesus Christ. Also, these seven men, it'll be in your notes, present us with the sequential stages of our redemption in Christ. And these seven men are Adam, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the seventh is Joseph. Is that one of your homework questions? Is that why you're looking? Okay, okay. That is one of your homework. Maybe I'll answer the question. I can't remember what the question is. <laughs> well, the believer, the believer can look back at Adam to see the old nature, the old man, what we were like before Christ. Adam's disobedience robbed God of the honor and the love that was due him. He tried to hide from God's presence, didn't he? And to cover his sin and his shame with a fig leaf works religion of his own invention. A work system religion. Cover my shame and my sin with a fig leaf. He also tried to justify his bad decision, his sin, by actually blaming God. Don't people do that? Well, God, if you hadn't given me that drop-dead gorgeous wife, I wouldn't have sinned. And yet, amazing grace. 
And it is. It is so amazing. Despite all that, Adam, as soon as he sinned, he was presented with the promise of a savior. Mm, We'll talk about that next time. Well, Adam had, you know, at the beginning, he had more. He had many, many sons, but his first two sons were Cain and Abel. And in them, we have a picture of the two natures. We have the flesh, Cain, and we have the spirit, Abel, the natural and the spiritual. Now, of course, it was the second birth son, always showing us the importance of the second birth, being born again. It was the second birth son, Abel, who obeyed the word of God through his prophet father, Adam, and offered by faith a blood sacrifice, a blood offering that anticipated the coming Savior. He didn't probably understand what he was doing there completely, but Adam had said, you know, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. This is what God told me to do, that we have to do. Abel obeyed. Cain offered what? The works of his own hands. So then Noah, Noah comes along, third man. He continues the picture of the spiritual man who knows what it's like (laughs) to be different from the world. Boy, did he ever. And to be called out from the world. Aren't we as a church? Ecclesia, Greek means called out ones. Called out of the world and into a new world. How were we called out of the old world? By way of the ark of safety. Who is the ark? Christ is the ark. Well, then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, they set forth that which is the believer's continuing experience after salvation. Abraham, representing the life of faith, shows how the man of faith goes forward. But the woman of faith, you don't always know what's ahead of you, do you? You know, Abraham just in faith stepped forward, not knowing where God is, was leading him. We don't know what tomorrow may bring, but we just step forward in faith. He shows us how the man of faith goes forward, always keeping his eyes fixed on the end goal, on the celestial city. Isaac, what does his name mean? Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Laughter. That's a good name to name a kid laughter Uh, Isaac reveals the life of sonship enjoying the wells of water lots of wells in Isaac's life you know the well of living water and he represents the abundant life and willing obedience to the father even at personal cost Jacob represents the life of service as well as the ongoing struggle with the flesh and with the will. Do we encounter that day by day? Absolutely. And then Joseph, who is the seventh final figure, pictures the mature believer whose life entails a lot of persecution. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, what? You shall suffer persecution. A lot of it unjustly. He encountered a lot of suffering. But... Ultimately, where did he end up? In glory, sitting with Pharaoh, you know, seated at the right hand like he was such a picture of Jesus. Okay, so for every newborn believer, the order of this of his regenerate life is going to follow the course that is set forth in the book of Genesis by these seven representative men. There will first of all be that day when he realizes he is naked before God, Adam. And therefore, he must obey God's one way of coming to him, as did Abel. He will find he is different from the world, but he entered the one way of safety from the deep waters of God's judgment on sin, Noah. He will walk by faith, Abraham, as he enjoys his sonship, Isaac, and as he serves the Lord faithfully. Jacob, even suffering unjustly, but is eventually lifted up and honored by God. Joseph. Isn't that beautiful? That was thanks to Arthur Pink. I take no credit for that whatsoever. Well, since this, again, is a study on Old Testament Christology, we might also find it fascinating to see see some contrasts and comparisons between the Edenic tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that's what's up on the board. You see it? 
Uh, the, the, and I say Edenic, that's not a fancy word. It just means it was in Eden, okay? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Edenic tree. We're going to see some comparisons between that tree and Calvary's tree upon which the Lord Jesus died. That was called a tree several times in the New Testament. And what am I talking about? The cross, the cross. Okay, so, and by the way, trees are important in the scripture. If you did a study on trees, it would be very fascinating. Do you know that Jesus saved a man under a tree? Nathaniel. He saved a man up a tree? Zacchaeus. And he saved a man on a tree? The thief on the cross. And he did it all by himself hanging from a tree. (laughs) Well, anyway, the Edenic tree was put in place by the Lord to test man. The Calvary tree was provided by the Lord to save man because he failed the test. (laughs) The Edenic tree was, Eve said in chapter 3, verse 6, pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. I don't know if she said that or thought that. I can't remember. But anyway, it was pleasant to the eyes. I'm sure it was beautiful. And it looked, oh, the fruit hanging from that tree must have just looked scrumptious. And I don't think it was an apple. I don't know what it was. We don't know what it was. But Calvary's tree provided the means for one of the most horrific, shameful, painful ways of execution that men, man has ever devised. So it certainly was not pleasant to look upon. And it certainly was not desired by anyone. Interestingly, God forbade man to partake of the Edenic tree. You cannot eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil or you'll die. Whereas an invitation is extended to all men to partake of the Edenic tree, the Calvary tree. Well, because God forbade man to partake of the first tree, Satan did his best and he was successful to get man to take from it. Because it was forbidden, he got man to take it. However, because God invites men to freely partake of the second tree, Satan does his best and is highly successful in getting men not to partake of it. Partaking of the Edenic tree brought what into this world? Sin, death, evil, the curse of God. However, partaking from, the, from Calvary's tree brings forgiveness, life, eternal life. I, I, I just, I told women again yesterday, I can't understand why not everybody wants to exchange their sin and shame for the free gift of eternal life and forgiveness. It's such, such a simple thing, that exchange. Why, why don't they accept it? Pride. You know, they want to work their own way. or They're just, I just don't understand it. Because as soon as I heard the gospel, I said, well, that's just too good to be true. <laughs> Give it to me. Well, Adam, Adam felt shame after partaking of the tree in Eden, didn't he? And Christ himself endured that shame and the shame of all sinners. He endured the shame. Why? He endured the shame for the joy that was set before him. The joy, part of that joy was not only being back in glory with his father, but seeing all the fruit from his atonement work. Adam was a thief. So was Eve when they partook of the forbidden tree. Consequently, they were driven out of paradise. However, a thief who partook of the second tree entered that very day into paradise, didn't he? Did you realize that there were actually two thieves in the account of the first tree and two thieves connected with the second tree? Both trees concern the knowledge of good and evil. Now, with the first Adam, this is really obvious because when he partook of the forbidden fruit of the first tree, his eyes were opened to the knowledge of his own sin and shame. You see, he gained the experiential knowledge of good and evil from the evil side. He didn't know how good the good was that he had until he understood evil. 
Well, concerning the cross of Calvary, nowhere, nowhere that you look will you find goodness displayed as much as on that second tree. Goodness displayed in the sacrificial love of the one who hung there for us. As also nowhere else will you find so much compound evil poured upon that one. Evil of man and Satan poured upon him. As well as the justice of God, the wrath of God poured upon him. So that tree was definitely good and evil, wasn't it? Both trees affect all men. The Edenic tree was a tree of death for all of Adam's race because one man partook of it. Calvary's tree is available to all Adam's race. Why? Because one man partook of it. People will say, well, I don't think it's fair that because of one man, we all have to suffer. Well, you know what? You can remedy that really quickly. Just partake of the second tree and it will all be undone. (laughs) You know, the thou shalt surely die will be changed to thou shalt surely not die. Because to be absent from the body, instantly present with the Lord. Actually, the cross is a combination of the two trees that God put in the midst of the Garden of Eden. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Think about the horizontal beam of the cross. It represents the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here on earth, what do we see? Good and evil, don't we? The vertical beam of the cross is the tree of life. How do we get from earth to heaven? Tree of life. We partake of the cross. So the cross really represents both of those trees that were put in the midst of the garden. By the way, the Calvary tree was in the midst of a garden. So both the first Adam and the second Adam died in gardens. God gave Adam and Eve every opportunity to choose life over death. In his mercy, he saw to it that the choice was heavily unbalanced. Because they were given permission to eat of every single tree in the garden except one. Just one tree. I mean, it seems so simple, doesn't it? Just one restriction. And they have an abundance of other food that they can eat. It's like I say, you can't eat of that that one cake there because that's mine. (laughs) I have my eye on that cake up there. But look, you've got all this other food you can eat. But you have to go and have that one piece of cake. That's, I mean... No wonder they had trouble. If man had trouble obeying one commandment, no wonder they failed with ten commandments. <laughs> um, but, he, you know, he gave him a very simple choice. Well, we have a very simple choice, too. Mankind still has a very simple choice. As Adam was presented with only one restriction, do not eat of that fruit or you shall surely die. Men are presented with only one redemption, one way of redemption. Except the fruit of that one tree. The Calvary tree, the cross. And what is the fruit of that tree? The fruit of that tree is forgiveness. It's atonement. He atoned for our sins. Accept the fruit of that tree and thou shalt surely not die. Where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. Well, we turn now to discuss Satan's part in all of this. I want you to understand... People will ask the question, non-Christians might ask Christians, you know, why did God, uh, your God, who you say is so good, why did he create the devil? And why doesn't he judge him? Why does, if he, you know, why doesn't he just get rid of him right away? Why did he create him? Why doesn't he destroy him? You know how you can answer them? He didn't and he will. (laughs) God did not create the devil. God did not create the devil. He created a magnificent cherub angel named Lucifer, the bright shining one, beautiful, magnificent creature. He did create him, but he didn't create the devil. He also gave the angels free will. Now, God knew there was a risk in giving angels and man free will, but he was willing to take that risk. Um, But he had to give the angels free will so that they too could choose to love and obey and serve and worship him. 
it was Lucifer who self-made the devil because he chose to not reciprocate God's love. Why? Well, he was too in love with himself. He loved himself, and his pride caused him, a created being, to reach the point where he decided that he could actually become as God. You see, the deceiver of the whole world, first of all, first and foremost, deceived himself, didn't he? He was self-deceived. And, of course, the Lord knew what was going on in his heart the minute it happened. And who is the one who cast Satan and one-third of the angels who rebelled with him to the earth? Who? The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus cast him. And he even says he saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Well, when Satan was down here on earth, he was more determined than ever to war against God, to continue his rebellion. And since God had just begun the human race, it was a great time for him to corrupt humanity. In one stroke, he could not only corrupt through Adam all of Adam's offspring, but he could usurp his dominion over the earth. Through man's fall, Satan became not only the prince of the power of the air, don't always blame hurricanes and things on God. Who's the prince of the power of the air? Satan. And he became the god of this world. Right? And Jesus did not dispute that. He, he knows. He usurped dominion from Adam. But the Lord used Satan for his own divine purposes. He is the expert at using evil for his own good. Although man, now what I'm going to say next might shock you, <clears throat> but although man was made sinless and innocent, he was not made righteous. What? Well, think about it. And as strange as that sounds, righteousness is sinlessness maintained in the presence of temptation. Let me repeat that. Righteousness is continued sinlessness, not giving in to direct temptation. God knew that his test of man, that one tree, he knew that test would be turned into temptation by Satan. And yet he permitted it. He did not initiate it. God did not initiate that temptation because he does not tempt anyone. But he sure does test us. But he knew Satan would turn the test into temptation. And he allowed it. Why? He allowed it so that man could freely choose to demonstrate his love for God by obeying his word and thereby be declared righteous. You get it? Are you following me? Now, when Adam failed the test to maintain his sinlessness by obedience, even in the face of indirect temptation, do you know that Adam was not directly tempted by Satan? Was he? No. Eve was directly tempted by Satan, but not Adam. So Adam's temptation was indirect. Do you know what Adam's temptation was? Eve. Not even what Eve said. We don't even know if she said anything. She just had the fruit in her hand. We don't know if she said a word. But Adam's temptation was her, his love for his bride. So he failed the test. He not only lost his sinless innocence, but he did not get to be declared righteous. However, the last Adam... Jesus Christ fully resisted Satan's direct temptations. And you know, they both came right at the onset of their ministries, didn't they? With Adam and with the last Adam. <clears throat> he did resist Satan's direct temptation, thus maintaining his sinlessness and also proving his absolute righteousness. Well, Satan waited until Eve was alone. And his strategy began by attempting to get her to doubt God's word. Nothing new. <laughs> he asked her, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now Satan is very wise, but his wisdom is full of sin. So his sin-tainted, twisted wisdom, he was planting in Eve's mind 
the suggestive thoughts of, uh, you know, she was, he was planting a seed of doubt about, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Maybe Adam made it up. <laughs> and the other seed he was planting was the seed of discontent, seed of doubt and seed of discontent. He was trying to suggest to her that maybe she was missing out on something, that, you know, God's commandment was just too restrictive. Really, I mean, how selfish can he be? He's not letting you eat of every single tree in the garden. He wanted her to think that God was withholding some greater good for her. He was not letting her live up to the, her potential as a woman. <laughs> Ever heard that one before? Uh, he was limiting her, her um, he, he was trying to curb her personal liberties. After all, you've got all these liberties in Christ. Have you heard that one? Just go ahead and do whatever. He was implanting a seed of discontent. That first approach with Eve was so successful. Does he use it yet to this day? Oh, yes. Over and over and over again. His foremost objective is to cast doubt on this book right here. The word of God. Yea, hath God said. In other words, how do you really know God said that? Maybe, you know, it's just man written. They made it up. Uh, Jesus didn't really say that. We have a guy that writes for our newspaper down in Moore County columns that I just, just, they just make my blood boil. And he's a retired Baptist minister. But he says, Jesus didn't say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to me but by the Father. The disciples made that up after he died. All those red letter words that Jesus said in your Bible, Jesus didn't say any of them. The disciples made it up. They invented Christianity. <laughs> and that's, not, I mean, he just says all kinds of things that and I've written him <laughs> I sent him a 15 page email one day <clears throat> I did <laughs> I really did <laughs> I wonder why the paper didn't print that one uh uh he's he he, he uh, well you know he's she's she might well, she didn't have a sin nature so she couldn't be thinking you know that maybe Adam made it up but she might be thinking he's trying to get her to think well, maybe God didn't mean it literally. <laughs> there you go. Maybe he was just speaking in poetry or allegorically. How do you know you can take it literally? Don't eat of that one tree or you'll die. That's how, I don't know how you can change that very much. Uh, <laughs> how did she know she had an accurate translation of God's word? Maybe something went wrong in the translation. <laughs> the devil, who knew both good and evil was more than a match for innocent Eve. What did she only know? She only knew good. And she didn't even know how good she had the good. But she did have a very, very powerful weapon at her disposal. You know that? She had the sword of the Lord. She had the word of God. And as brief as it was at that time, she could have hidden it in her heart that she might not sin against God. I mean, one verse. Don't eat of that tree or you'll die. Who can't memorize that? Problem is doing it. You got it. <laughs> But she did not handle her sword very well. You know what she did? <clears throat> she did what a lot of people do. First of all, she took from God's word. She took out the words freely and every. You know, God said you could eat freely of every tree. She took those out. We can't eat, you know, of the tree. She didn't use freely and every. In other words, she was limiting God's goodness. Then she added to God's word. She added, and we can't touch it either. He, God didn't say that. Go touch it all you want. Just don't eat it. So she took from, she added to, and then you know what she did? She lessened God's holiness by lessening his judgment against sin. Do people do that today? Oh, God, you know, he's a God of love. He's not going to send anybody to hell. She didn't say, you shall surely die. She said, lest you die. Three big mistakes. She did not handle her sword very well. Not at all like Jesus handled it in the wilderness, right? Whoa, whoop, whoop, whoop. It is written. <laughs> and you know where he quoted every time? From Deuteronomy of all places. Boy, he did Satan in. Mm. Since Eve wasn't handling her sword very well, Satan figured he could get away with a total contradiction of what God said. And he did. He came out with an outright lie. Thou shalt not surely die. And that's why Jesus called him the father of what? Father of lies. 
Sadly, however, his tactic was successful because Eve partook of the tree. She gave in to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. You know, maybe I can become his God and know everything. And she gave in. But Satan's greatest accomplishment was what she did next. She gave to Adam. And in four words, (laughs) the most important event that took place for us in history past, as far as mankind, well, no, the most important event was the cross, but four words to say what Adam did, because in Adam we all die. You know what those words are? And he did eat. The momentous test of Adam and Eve was met with failure. But that failure was foreknown. You think that was a surprise to God? No, he knew it all along. He knew it was, would happen. And that was the whole purpose for Christ's redemptive plan. plan. Remember, he is the lamb slain when? Before the foundation of the world. Without the fall, without the fall, neither mankind nor the watching holy angels would have ever been able to praise the Lord for his attributes of unconditional love, grace, mercy, forgiveness. He has those attributes, and he had them from eternity past, but no one could worship him for those attributes because no one understood that he had never demonstrated them. You following me? So he wants to be worshipped for all of his qualities, all of his attributes. Without the fall, we wouldn't have understood his unconditional love. So the account of the fall of Adam and Eve is the whole reason behind the promised seed of the woman who would pay the wages for sin for all the descendants of Adam's fallen race and freely impute his righteousness on them, those who put their faith in him. Skip some things because of time. (laughs) In Romans 8, verses 14 to 17, Paul was rejoicing in the fact that the sonship we gain in Christ far exceeds the sonship that we lost in Adam. Adam had created sonship. You know, both Adam and Christ, the first and last Adams, are called sons of God. One is with a small s, Adam, because he was his sonship was created sonship. He was of the earth. However, Christ's sonship is divine sonship, capital S, son of God. Adam's created sonship only reflected the far greater greater sonship of the divine model, the eternal son of God, who bears the image of God in absolute perfection. To see him is to see the Father because he is the express image of of God. So here's the bottom line of all this. If Adam had not sinned, his descendants would have lived forever in these bodies, earthly bodies. They never would have aged. I don't know how all that would have worked, but we would forever live in physical bodies. However, Because of God's grace in redemption through this last Adam, every son and daughter of Adam who is in Christ will live forever in what kind of body? A human glorified. Which body would you rather have? I mean, yeah, definitely glorified celestial body like Christ's post-resurrection appearances. And not only will we live forever in glorified human bodies, but we will share in Christ's divine nature, in his sonship, his type of sonship. And we will be joint heirs with him of, you know, in all that he has dominion over, which is what? Just the earth? Everything, everything. The Lord put Adam on earth to serve as prophet, priest, and king. So as to show forth himself. Because who else was prophet, priest, and king? This last Adam, Christ. Now, in a sense, he also, Adam also shows us Christ's role as redeemer. But we'll talk about that next time. But as a prophet, Adam was the one who received the word, the direct word from God. 
as well as the command of God and the warning of God. And then he communicated. He was God's prophet. He communicated the word of God to his wife and then later to his children and to his grandchildren. He lived a long time. As a priest, God put Adam in his garden sanctuary. You know, Eden was like the temple. It was where God dwelled with man. Now, there was a whole earth, wasn't there? Eden was just one place on that earth. It was a garden sanctuary. It was like a garden temple. Adam was the priest of God's garden sanctuary. And he commissioned him to guard it, didn't he? And then instructed him with the first Torah, the first law, which was not to eat of the tree. And he was um, God's first priest. His disobedience, like that of later Israel's, resulted in being cast out of the sacred land. Priestly obligations in Israel included the duty of guarding the temple. There were actually priests who were called guards and gatekeepers. And, of course, this was relevant for, for Adam, the first priest of God, because what he slipped up, didn't he? He did not prevent the arrival of Satan in the garden. He, I don't know what he was doing, but he wasn't on guard that day, was he? <clears throat> well, as king... There was something else I was going to say, and it, lo- it just went right out. <laughs> As king, Adam had dominion. This was an easy one. You know, he had king. He had dominion over the earth. God crowned him with glory and honor and put all things under his feet. So he was prophet, priest, and king. It was only after his fall that those three offices were divided. So that no other man except Christ, the last Adam, ever had held all three of those offices. A lot of speculation, I'll close with this, I promise. A lot of speculation has been made as to why in the world Adam ate the forbidden fruit. Because we're told in 1 Timothy 2.14 that Adam was not deceived by Satan. So he purposely sinned, didn't he? He deliberately and purposely sinned. We know that. My husband always says, oh, you're just like Eve because you you're so easily deceived. And then I say, but you purposely sin. <laughs> so why in the world would Adam deliberately have taken that fruit from his wife? Well, the answer is probably given to us in the fact that Adam is a type. We know this. It tells us in the New Testament that he is a type. It says a figure of Christ. Figure in Greek is typos, typos. He is a type of Christ. So could it be that when Adam beheld his wife with the forbidden fruit in her hand, realizing, of course, what she had done, that he deliberately and knowingly partook of her sin so that he might be with her? If she died, he would die with her. He didn't want to leave her to face God's judgment alone. Christ so loved his church his bride, and that he gave himself willingly for her. Although perfectly sinless, Christ purposely and willingly became sin for us so that he might have us with him forever. He partook of our judgment. In fact, he became, he took our judgment in our place. Adam, although he was perfectly sinless, willingly partook of sin. This is different than what Satan did. Satan sinned for self, didn't he? Adam sinned for Eve. Even though he may not have realized it at first, he actually took the blame for her sin, since it's through Adam that all men die. We inherit the sin nature from Adam, from the man. There is no blood that goes between the woman and the baby in the womb. The blood is produced in the baby solely because of the introduction of the male sperm. So it is in Adam, that's why Jesus couldn't have a human father. Now, a complaint against this idea is that it makes Adam appear somewhat noble. So people say, ah, oh, that, you know, that can't be. Erase that from your minds. He was not noble in what he did. Because deliberately choosing to sin with Eve rather than to obey God is not noble. 
You see, he was choosing a created being over the creator. He was demonstrating more love for Eve than for the Lord. So just because Adam might serve as a type of Christ in some ways, in other ways, it's, you know, it's by contrast. Typology can never be carried all the way through through anybody in scripture because only Christ is perfect. So sometimes the types are by contrast, sometimes by comparison. Adam's sin was different than every other person's sin. We all sin because we're sinners. We're born as sinners with the Adamic sin nature. He, however, sinned deliberately. He opened the door through which sin and death entered the world. But thank God that is not the end of the story. There was a last Adam who who also opened a door. In fact, he himself is the door. He opened the door to the kingdom of heaven for all who believe on him. And I hope that includes you. Let's pray. Father, the cross of Christ on Calvary was definitely in the truest sense of the word, the tree of life for all those who will partake of its fruit, the fruit of the finished work of redemption. It is so marvelous that you now so openly, so graciously invite all sons and daughters of Adam to take and eat freely from that tree so that we might know experientially the knowledge of good and evil by choosing the good, Christ, and rejecting the evil that Satan brought into this world. I ask, Father, that there would not be one among us who has not tasted and seen that the Lord is good and true and wise and just and holy and love personified. I pray that there is not one among us who in faith has not partaken of the fruit of his finished work on that tree so that his, your righteousness is now imputed to her and she receives that wonderful promise, thou shalt surely not die. Oh, so much to gain so little to lose. Lord, I thank you for every woman here for her hunger to know you. I pray that in the next two weeks before we meet again, she will be salt and light to everyone she encounters. And uh, just bless her. Keep her from the evil one. Protect her family and bring us all back again safely in two weeks. For we do ask these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. God bless you.